0: Let's turn in our Bibles again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. Continue going through this letter from Paul, 2 Corinthians, and we come down to chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Let's read the word of God. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, but life in you. Let's pray again and ask for God's blessing. God, we thank you that you speak through your word. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. Give us your Holy Spirit as we think today about things that are completely the opposite of what our world thinks. They're completely the opposite of what is ingrained in us. Help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us by the Spirit to be able to discern spiritual things rather than the way that this world thinks. Teach us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've uh, probably heard the phrase looking the part, saying that someone does or doesn't look the part. And that phrase comes from the world of acting. Maybe it's a play or a movie, and they are casting someone, and so they cast, in general, someone who looks the part. So if you are casting for Superman, you are not going to cast the same person as if you are casting a hobbit. For Lord of the Rings. Uh, these people are going to look different. One will be short, one will probably be taller, one will be strong, one will be not as strong. You want to, in general, cast someone who looks the part. Well, we have been looking at the Apostle Paul and his ministry and his life and how different he is from the expectations of the Corinthians the Corinthians would have looked at Paul and they would have said, Really? Really? This is the guy that you, God, would choose to be an apostle, to proclaim the gospel around the world, to be one of the founders of the New Testament church? You're going to cast him? Paul has been talking even about The glory of his ministry, the glory of the new covenant ministry in chapter 3. And he's been talking about how Moses had a glorious ministry, and yet it was a ministry of condemnation. But the new covenant ministry has an even greater glory because the Spirit works to give life. And even Moses had uh, his face shining, radiating with the glory of God. And then this guy shows up. Paul, weak, frail, sick, beaten. I don't see any shining off of his face. How can this guy really be cast for the part of a minister of the new covenants? And at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been telling us about the glorious truth that when people preach the gospel, the spirit opens blind eyes on people's hearts and helps them to see the gospel of the glory of Christ, an even greater glory than what Moses saw. But here's Paul, the weak preacher of the gospel. And Paul wants to defend himself. And actually, tell us that actually somebody like him fits the part, is actually the kind of person that God chooses to use for his kingdom. And this is a lesson that we all need to learn, all of us who are Christians. To be a Christian is not to be strong, it is not to have worldly success. But to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, is to be weak because our strength comes from God. And that when we feel like we are useless because we might feel that in ourselves we have no natural gifts or natural abilities. Or in ourselves we don't match up to what the world would call a successful person. Or in ourselves we know that our, our bodies are weak and sinful and frail, and we get sick. And in ourselves, we know that we have limits, that we have flaws. And you might be tempted to think, well, I can't do much for God. God couldn't use me. And the lesson of verses 7 to 12 is exactly the opposite that that is just the kind of person that God desires to use for his kingdom. For all of us Christians who are weak in ourselves, God's power can work through us. To be weak is to look the part if you're following Jesus Christ. So that's the lesson. We're going to look at this lesson in three parts in the passage First, in verse 7, Paul gives us a metaphor. Then in verses 8 and 9, he explains the reality of what he experiences in his life and what we also experience. And then in verses 10 to 12, he gives the explanation of the metaphor. So that's how we're going to go through this passage. So first, we have the metaphor. Verse 7, the first line he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So, he says, this treasure. He must be talking about something. He must be assuming that we know what treasure he is talking about. Well, yeah, it's because he's been talking about that in verses 1 through 6. This is part of the problem when we have to break up passages because there's only so much you can say in one sermon. So we have to break it up. But verse 7 follows right after verses 1 through 6. The treasure is the gospel of the glory of Christ. The treasure is what he's just said at the end of verse 6 that the Spirit shines the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's a description of salvation. God saves people through the gospel. When the gospel is preached, the Spirit shines on people's hearts. To show them the glory of God through Jesus Christ. This is the treasure. And this treasure is the greatest treasure that there is. You cannot think of anything more valuable than the gospel. This is the great treasure. Maybe you've heard of the crown jewels of England. And people talk about the crown jewels uh, like... They might say there's so-and-so, such-and-such as the, the crown jewels of the Northeast or the crown jewels of America, the, the most important thing about a certain area, the most beautiful or most valuable thing about that place. Well, it comes from England and the crown jewels, which are literally jewels in the crown. And in England... These jewels uh, come from, from hundreds of years ago, the 1600s maybe, and they are a bunch of different types of jewels and valuable items that belong to the monarch, to the king or the queen. And so many of these jewels are on the crown, and only three people are allowed to touch these jewels. There's the jeweler, there's the archbishop, of the church of England and there's the king or a queen themselves. So only three people can touch these and the crown jewels are locked up in the tower of London. They are kept by armed guards to keep them safe. Why? Why only three people allowed to touch it? Why so much protection? Because they are so valuable. They don't want anybody risking damaging these jewels. They don't want anybody having access to be able to steal these jewels because this is the most important possession in the land of England. And yet the gospel is a greater treasure than any uh, jewel on this earth. But notice that Paul says in verse 7, he starts with the word, But, and so he's giving us a contrast, but we have this treasure, this great treasure, this valuable treasure, we have this great treasure, not as you would expect, not locked up in the Tower of London, not as you would expect in a safe, not as you would expect armed with guards, but... We have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay jars. Clay jars are the container for this most valuable of all treasures. Paul uses the image of a clay jar because it's very common to people in his day. It's very common for for him to to know about and talk about. A clay jar would be used for for very uh, everyday common things to store. So you would store your wine in a clay jar. You would store your wheat in a clay jar. Almost any possession that you wanted to keep safe from maybe the sun or from mice or whatever, you would put in a jar of clay. That was the main storage device. Very common. So if Paul were talking about something in our day, he might say, that the treasure is in a ziploc bag Ziplock bags you just use them and you throw them away or a grocery bag or a cardboard box something that is very common you put your stuff in your cardboard box and you stick that box in your attic or your basement something like that can you imagine putting your most valuable treasures in your cardboard box and sticking them in a cabinet, sticking them in a basement. And the other thing about jars of clay is not only are they common, they're also fragile. They easily break. And so they would even use the, the broken jar for scoops and things like this. They would use the parts of the jar that were broken because they would break so often. Imagine putting all your valuables in something so fragile putting all your valuables in something like a cardboard box. There's a reason that we have banks now. Uh, Maybe some people used to have all their cash and all their life savings stuck under their mattress. But eventually people figured out it might be a better idea to put our money in a bank because our house could burn down and we lose all our money. Or someone could break in and steal that cash and we'd lose everything that we have. But if we put it in a bank, those banks are secure, locked up with lots of steel, lots of bars, lots of locks, lots of security cameras, and maybe even armed guards. People put their valuables in banks and in safes. There's a reason they're called safes, because they keep our stuff safe. We don't call them frails. That doesn't give us confidence. I'm going to store my treasure in something that's frail. And yet, God has decided that this treasure would be in jars of clay. And the jar is us it's you and me. We are the frail jar containing the treasure of the gospel. We know that because of verse 8, he says, we are afflicted. In verse 12, he says, death is at work in us. This affliction and this death is at work in us to show, is showing us that, that we're the frail ones. We're the sick ones. We're the afflicted and dying ones. We are the fragile jars. And yet in those fragile jars, God keeps his great treasure. Maybe it's appropriate that we came to this passage today and and many in our church are sick. And it's a reminder to us that we are frail. We just get sick at any moment. You don't don't know that sickness is coming upon you. You don't know that that the virus is now on your body or inside you. It just comes upon you because we are people who get sick. We are frail people. Now, why does God choose to have this treasure in jars of clay? Well, he goes on to say in verse 7, it's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power of the gospel is there in verse 6, that the, the gospel creates light out of darkness. In the same way that God created the world out of nothing, our hearts which have nothing, which are hostile to God, the spirit out of this darkness of nothing creates light, creates the light of the gospel of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's the power of That is in this treasure and this power belongs to God and not to us. And God makes us frail and weak and sick and dying and full of flaws to show to the world and to show us that we aren't the power. We are not what makes the gospel effective. God does not depend on us to accomplish his purposes, to establish his kingdom. No, the power belongs to God and not to us. And he says it's surpassing power. It's beyond, beyond our frailties and weaknesses. The power belongs to God. This is why Jesus told us it is better for us that he would go away. So that he might send the spirit. The spirit who has this power. Have you ever thought, you know, well, couldn't Jesus have just stayed on earth? Couldn't he just have walked around and kept doing all his miracles, healings? Couldn't Jesus have filled stadiums like Billy Graham And just go on evangelistic crusades. And Jesus would be a better preacher than Billy Graham. And he would get more conversions. It would seem to make more sense. That it would would be a more powerful gospel. If Jesus was just still here on earth. Preaching himself. So why didn't he do that? Well it's because. Instead. Instead. He sends the Spirit to be in every single believer, every single jar of clay. And whereas Jesus could only be at one place at one time, and maybe he could fill up a stadium in Nairobi, Kenya, he would not have been able to at the same time be sharing the gospel in Albany, New York. But the reality is that now, with the Spirit, we can have believers all over the globe. We can have believers at the place that you work and the the neighborhood that you live in. And at one time, all over the place, there is the power of the gospel. There are people who are jars of clay Yet have the surpassing power of God working through him. So, this is the metaphor that Paul gives us the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Well, now let's look at the reality of Paul's life and how he explains that he is just a jar. He explains that he is a man who suffers. How is the power at work in him, even though he suffers? Well, let's read verses 8 and 9. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed here's how Paul was a clay jar not a strong safe not a man of steel who just by his own strength was able to push back any difficulty any suffering no he was a clay jar a vulnerable man who was afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. But how was the surpassing power of God at work? He was not crushed. He was not in despair. He was not forsaken. And he was not destroyed. So Paul is the clay jar who's put on the anvil and the sledgehammer comes and whacks the clay jar And yet somehow, Paul says, somehow the jar doesn't break. I'm the jar who's getting crushed by the hammer, but something is holding the jar together. There is a powerful glue that is resisting the force that is pressing against me, and that is the power of God. So that's what he's trying to explain in verses 8 to 9, the reality of how at the same time he is being uh, having all this affliction pressed down on him, and yet at the same time he is not broken. God is holding him together. I'll notice that he says, before we look at these four things, four contrasts, he says he's afflicted in every way. Paul faced all kinds of suffering. He gives us a list in chapter 11. We're not going to read through that. But he has all kinds of categories of of ways that he was afflicted. Paul faced persecution from other people. People tried to kill him. People beat him. People tortured him. Paul faced natural disasters like shipwrecks and storms. Paul was sinned against by other people. He mentions false brothers in chapter 11. And so we know that he had even relationship issues with with other people who sinned against him. He was robbed by other people. Paul faced physical needs. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was cold. Paul faced bodily ailments. He got sick. He maybe at some points almost was dead. Paul faced relationship struggles even with other believers as he's facing a struggle here with the Corinthians. And Paul mentions also he faces internal struggles. He says, above all, there is my anxiety for all the churches. So whatever kind of pain or sickness or suffering that you might experience in your life, You're probably in one of those categories that Paul also experienced. Paul suffered in every way. And so you can apply these verses to yourselves. You are afflicted in a certain way, yet through the power of God, God can keep you from being crushed. So let's look more closely at those four contrasts. First in verse 8. We are afflicted, but not crushed. That word afflicted means that Paul is like someone who's being pressed against. Suffering is pressing against him. He feels like he is being pinned to the ground, like a wrestler has pinned him on the ground and is crushing him, and he is not able to breathe. There's suffering in such a way that he feels like he is going to die. And he doesn't know how to get out of this. How does he get out of the pin? And yet at the very last moment when he thinks he can't breathe anymore, he's not crushed. He gets out of the pin. So Paul is suffering, even thinking that maybe he's on the verge of death. And yet somehow by the power of God, he makes it. God brings him through. Maybe you felt this way. Maybe you've had suffering in your life that you didn't understand how you would possibly get out of this. How is this going to get fixed? How can you make it through this? And yet, God keeps you from being crushed. Next one he says, perplexed but not driven to despair. To be perplexed means to be baffled. Perplexed means, I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what to do. I don't know why this is happening to me. He is perplexed, baffled. You're perplexed when things happen that you weren't ready for. Or things happen that you've never been through before, and so you don't know how to deal with this situation. We talk about uh, how in life sometimes you get thrown a curveball. Well, uh, in baseball sometimes it's kind of funny to watch a batter and how he gets thrown a strike. So you know that he gets maybe thrown a fastball several times, and the fastball comes straight at him really fast. And so he's expecting that the next pitch is going to be straight at him, really fast. But instead, it looks like it's going way up. And so he maybe he doesn't swing. Oh, this is going to be way high. And then it curves. And if you watch baseball, you know sometimes he just he just stands there, perplexed. And he says, "How did that happen?" Sometimes he'll shake his head. Sometimes he'll just put his head down like he's just he's so embarrassed that he just got fooled. He's perplexed. And sometimes that happens in our lives. Just can't believe that this is happening to me. What do I do? I have no clue what to what to do, how to handle this. But when we are perplexed by the power of God. We are not driven to despair. Despair means to give it all up. To say that it's all hopeless. What's the point? I didn't see this coming. I don't know what to do. I can't do anything about it. So I'm just giving up. Now to be in despair could be in despair in your faith. What's the point of following Christ? A lot of good that did me. I wanted to follow Christ and I thought he was going to bless me and things were going to go well for me. And here's the curveball. I wasn't expecting this to happen. So what's the point? And So you give up following Christ. Or despair could be giving up completely on life. And some people end their lives because they are given up To despair. What's the point of even living? If this is all the stuff that always keeps happening to me. And there's nothing that I can do to get rid of it. There's nothing I can do to make it go away. Why don't I just end everything? But. Through the power of God. You don't have to be driven to despair. And you shouldn't. You should not despair. You should never give up. Because if you belong to Christ, God's power can always work to keep you from despair. God's power can always hold you together, no matter how much you feel that you are about to be crushed because you're just a clay jar. God always makes a way. Of escape. And so we should not give up on following Christ because he will hold us fast to himself by his power. We should not despair of life because there is always hope when we turn to Christ. And then he says, We are persecuted but not forsaken. There's a little bit of irony here in what Paul is saying because to be persecuted literally just means to be chased around, to be chased. We usually think of that as someone uh, coming after you to try to hurt you, arrest you. And we think about that as a a Christian. You're persecuted for your faith. Literally, it could just mean that someone is chasing him. And you see that a lot of times in the Psalms, how he feels like people are coming after him. Maybe you felt that way. Someone just has it out to get you. Someone is just always trying to stir up trouble around you. Someone who just won't leave you alone. And they're always trying to cause a problem. And you just want them to go away. But they keep chasing after you. But the irony here, he says, I'm persecuted but not forsaken. What does that mean? It means there's someone else who won't leave him alone. There's someone else who is always chasing him, who is always beside him. But who is it? It is God. So while this other person is chasing after him to hurt him, another person, God, is always beside him, no matter where he goes. So Paul can say, though I am persecuted, I am not forsaken by God. Remember, That because of Christ, we are not forsaken. That the only one whom God loved and forsook was Jesus. Jesus was forsaken on the cross because he was taking our sins on himself, experiencing the wrath of God, so that God could then enter into a covenant with us. And God would never leave us, or forsake us because he forsook Christ on the cross. In Christ, though you are persecuted, you are not forsaken. And then last one, he says, we are struck down, but not destroyed. Here's another image. This one comes from the battlefield where maybe you are shot with an arrow or you were hit with something, and so you're struck down, and so you fall down to the ground. And they're your enemy. He thinks he's got you, and he's about to thrust his sword through you, and he's about to kill you. And then at, again at the last minute, somehow, you move. Something happens, and he is not able to destroy you. So there you are. You've been hit by suffering. You think, how is this going to get any better? How am I going to survive this? And yet, through the power of God, you are not destroyed. So these are the four contrasts that Paul tells us of the realities that he faced, the realities of suffering that we face. A few lessons before we go to the next part. One is... That, this reminds us to be thankful. Be thankful because I'm sure you can remember times in your life when you felt like you were about to get crushed. When you felt like you were about to be driven to despair. When you felt like you were going to be forsaken and you were about to be destroyed. But remember, you're still here remember how God has kept you. He has kept you, the clay jar, from being crushed. So be thankful. Thankful for the past, for God's power in your life. And then another lesson for us is to be encouraged from these verses. Because maybe you're going through one of these right now. Maybe this is how you feel. Maybe you do feel like you're about to be crushed. But remember. Remember how God has helped you in the past. Remember how God works here as he talks about in verses 8 and 9. Remember how God worked through Paul. God always keeps us from being driven to despair. So, Paul has given us the metaphor in verse 7. We've seen how he lives out that metaphor in verses 8 and 9. Now he's going to explain the metaphor in verses 10 to 12. So here's the explanation. The jar is us dying. It's us suffering. It's us dying to ourselves. The power of God that is at work through the jar is the life of Christ that is at work through us. Notice, starting in verse 10. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. So, you notice three verses, and in each verse, essentially, he's saying the same thing. There's a pattern of death that results in life. Verses 10 and 11 are more general. Verse 12 is more sp- specific. Let's start in verse 10. He says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And this idea of carrying around the death or the deadness of Jesus is like an image of a pallbearer. A pallbearer carries a dead body. And Paul says, that his life, as he's going around to different cities and he's living his life and he's uh, serving Christ, he is carrying around like a pallbearer the death of Jesus. But how is he doing that? It's in his body. His body or his life is what shows to the world the death of Jesus. And Paul talks about this in a similar way in Galatians 3, verse 1. He says, To the Galatians, it was before your very eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does he mean there? He means that as he was preaching through his life and through his body, he was a public portrayal of Jesus Christ crucified. Not that he was like acting things out, no, but he was living it out in his life as he experiences suffering, as he experiences. Uh, Near death, as he is denying himself, he is displaying the death of Jesus. He is putting up a billboard of Jesus Christ crucified. So when we suffer, Paul is saying that as our bodies are dying, your suffering is actually displaying the gospel the death of Jesus Christ. And that's true even when you suffer, not just for your faith. When you get cancer, a non-Christian gets cancer. When you lose your job and a non-Christian loses their job. We suffer in the same ways. We, we experience basically the same things. But for the unbeliever, It's only an experience of of the judgment of God. For the believer, one of the things that is happening when we suffer even through cancer or losing your job is that you again get to display the death of Christ. You get to display to the world that Christ really has been crucified and that eternity is real and eternity is what matters. And so when you grieve, you grieve differently from an unbeliever when someone dies. Because you know the grace of God toward you. And so instead of becoming bitter towards God, you can still be thankful to God because of the grace that he has given you. When you lose your job, you know that, yes, there's a trial and there's something that you need to do about this. And and it's an important thing. When you lose your job, you handle the suffering in a different way. You know that money isn't all that there is. and You know that God will sustain you through that trial. And so by trusting God and by not going into despair over that, you are displaying what Christ has done for you. And so in many other ways, with all kinds of ways that you suffer, it is an opportunity for you to display the death of Christ. You suffer, but you suffer in a different way from the unbeliever. But then, when we suffer, we also have the life of Christ at work in us. And so, in verse 10, the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. In verse 11, the life of Jesus is manifested in our mortal flesh. What is the super glue that keeps the jar together? It's the life of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Christ. Christ has risen from the dead and defeated death and he lives forever and he gives that resurrection power to all of his people. And so as you are suffering, as you are dying, as you are being afflicted, the resurrection power of Christ is holding you together. And even when you literally physically die, even when your body goes into the ground and turns into dust, it's the resurrection power of Jesus that will bring all those molecules together and raise you up With a glorified body. The resurrection of Christ is at work in your body. One day you will be glorified. But then notice verse 12 is a little bit different. A little more specific. He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Not only is the life of Jesus working in our bodies physically, holding us together, but life is being created in others. Death at work in us, that's Paul talking, but life in you, talking to the Corinthians. And so when we die, as in dying to ourselves, dying to display the the death of Christ, When we die, it can create life in other people. And Paul is obviously talking about spiritual life here. Because he's not dead at this point, right? So we know he's not physically dead, so he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death of denying himself, which creates a spiritual life in the people who hear. And so here's the lesson that he's trying to tell us. If spiritual life is going to be created in other people, it's going to come through a jar of clay. It's going to come through a person who has to deny themselves and a person who is going to suffer. And if you do not suffer, other people will not have life, spiritual life, through the gospel. The death that could be at work in us could be as something as simple as the awkwardness that you will have to get over to maybe talk to someone about Christ. You might have to die a little bit on the inside to talk about Christ. It could be death in the sense of you have to give up something that is comfortable or convenient. Maybe you have some leisure time. Of course, there's nothing wrong with leisure or relaxation, but there might be times where there's too much of it. Maybe you need to die to yourself, and maybe there needs to be less me time and more serving Christ time. Maybe you need to serve Christ. Maybe you need to find some way to be proclaiming the gospel. Life will only be created in others if death is at work in you. Or it could be something even bigger. It could be something like you have to move to the Middle East. And maybe you need to give up the comforts of America and the conveniences of living here. And you need to die to yourself because if nobody does this, then those people in the Middle East, they will not hear the gospel. Life cannot be created in them if other people don't die and give up their preferences, their desires to go serve others because they want to serve Christ. Death is at work in us, but life in you. So, we've looked at these verses and want to conclude by just giving three quick applications for us. So, first, I have a question How do you look upon other people? Um, The Bible says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And if man looks at the outward appearance, then we would have no value for a jar of clay. We would have no value for someone like Paul. We have no value for people who are weak and afflicted. So how do you look at other people? And what, what do you deem as successful? And I don't just mean the way they look physically, but maybe their skills, their natural gifts their abilities, their achievements, their education, their money. There are all kinds of things that that we look at other people as successful. And maybe you want to be like them because they look successful to you. But are you looking on the outward appearance and not at the heart? Are you looking at someone who is a, a bank safe and you want to be like them rather than wanting to be like a jar of clay who on the outside might look very weak. Uh, in his book, The Bruised Reed, of uh, Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, he uses a metaphor that's similar to this one, except he uses the metaphor of a reed and how it's bruised, so it's beaten, but doesn't break. And so Christians are weak is the point that he's making. And he says this, he says ungodly spirits, ignorant of God's ways and bringing sinners to heaven, censure, they scold, broken-hearted Christians as miserable persons when God is doing a good, gracious work in them. We sometimes even as Christians can be ungodly when we look at other Christians who are brokenhearted and we say, What's wrong with you? You should have joy. It's, it's, it's like a version of the prosperity gospel. You, know, you should just be happy all the time. Why are you so miserable? Now he's talking about broken-hearted Christians, right? So he's not talking about pessimists and, and complainers. Those people, you do need to censure them, scold them. But he's talking about people who suffer people who are weak, maybe even people who are disabled and are constantly suffering with things. Don't tell them, hey, just get over it. Have joy in your life. No, see that God is doing a good and gracious work in them because they are jars of clay and they can show the power of God working through them. Look upon that when you see people who are suffering. And then the challenge. The challenge for us is be willing to be a clay jar. Do you want to be fruitful or comfortable? If you want to be comfortable, you won't be fruitful. If you want to be fruitful, you'll be a clay jar. Recognize your weaknesses. Recognize that you're going to get afflicted. You'll be perplexed and persecuted and struck down. But through your frail flesh, the surpassing power of God will work through you. Maybe there is too much pride in us to keep us from being useful to God. We don't want to be clay jars. And then the final application is just an encouragement If you are suffering, God is doing a good, gracious work in you if you are a Christian. When you feel the most useless may just be when you're actually the most useful to God. Because God takes those who are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and then his power works through those people. If that's you, be encouraged that you can be very useful to God right now. So do you look the part? We're not casting for Superman, but we're casting for a follower of Jesus and for someone who's willing to be used by him to proclaim the gospel. So be a clay jar. And the power of God will work through you. And that is what God is looking for. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the power of the gospel and for your wisdom in using weak and frail people to spread the gospel. We pray, Lord, that the power and glory would go to you and we pray for your help. In our flesh, we desire to be strong in ourselves. In our flesh, we want to escape affliction. We do not want death at work in us. Pray for your humbling of us, for your teaching, and for your growing us. That death might be at work in us, so that life might be created in others by the power of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.